Welcome to Home's Room. Just like homeroom, we start off our day getting together with our homies, swapping stories, even a little kiss and tell action. This podcast contains language not suitable for younger listeners. Topics about sex and mental health. Discretion is advised. Our views are our own. Let class begin. Welcome back to Home's Room. Uh, I got a guest again. I haven't done an interview in a while, so I'm a little rusty. We'll see how this goes. But today I have creator of Leap of Courage, porn addiction recovery program for men, former wildlife biologist. And I'm I'm just going to stop there because I know that there's more and I'm sure I'm going to miss something. So can you tell us more, more Miss Jessica Jordan? Absolutely. There is <laughs> there's an abundance to tell. So <laughs> I'll start with a nutshell of of what's going on with me, how I ended up from being a wildlife biologist to creating the world's most comprehensive pornography addiction recovery program on the planet for men, which also encompasses anything under the umbrella of any sex-related addictions. For example, some of my clients are addicted to hiring escorts or you name it, anything under the sun sex-related addiction. Um, And so essentially... Back in 2016, in February, I had ingested a naturally occurring seafood neurotoxin that put a 19 millimeter lesion on the left front lobe of my brain. That's about the size of an extra jumbo jelly bean or a dime. And that was in the prefrontal cortex. And essentially, something that is very common for people who have head trauma is they develop something called hypersexuality disorder which is essentially a sex addiction. And the brain just kind of creates this. I sometimes wonder how many football players have this with all the head trauma mm-hmm. from football uh, historically. And it sent me spiraling on a five-year recovery journey. It created a severe neurological and cardiovascular issues in my body that had me almost die many dozens of times. And then also it created adult PTSD to a pretty severe degree. Uh, as I was healing from that, I was able to learn about the fact that I kind of revealed it to myself as I was learning about trauma, that I also had childhood trauma, that I was, I learned about it in my thirties and I was 100% oblivious to the fact that I had childhood trauma, which is the case for most adults who actually have it. And so as I was healing from my, my hypersexuality disorder, which I was focusing on healing the physical and the PTSD, and then the addiction aspect got healed as a result. During three years of those five years when I was recovering, I was dating a man who was severely addicted to pornography. So severely addicted that in fact, he was rejecting my sexual advances. So here I was a sex addict wanting to, for me, I was really after the the emotional connection piece, but my body was physically creating like, insane physical urges to have the sexual experience that seem almost unrealistically crazy. And so here I was with that condition, healing from ciguatera neurotoxin illness, brain damage, hypersexuality disorder, PTSD, a whole slurry of things going on while I was dating a man who was so severely addicted to pornography that it had rewired his brain to prefer the sexual experience to be with pornography only. 
Whereas the sexual experience with a real person was so um, overwhelming, would seem like a chore, would create enormous amounts of anxiety, performance anxiety, social anxiety, you name it. And so that's actually extremely common for a lot of men who are addicted to pornography will actually prefer the pornographic experience over the real deal. So much so that even if, you know, the porn star or whatever that they're watching the video were to step out and be physically present in the room, they would actually prefer to watch the the digital screen version than have the real version because the neural pathways in the mm. brain have begun to uh, strengthen and develop to have a preference towards just what's on the digital screen and for the sexual experience to happen only when you're alone. So now when there's another person in the room and the digital screen isn't the thing causing the arousal, the brain goes, we don't know what to do in this situation. We need the digital screen or we need to be alone in order to have full arousal. And if that's not the conditions, then the, the brain and the subconscious mind gets anxiety and doesn't create the arousal and gets uncomfortable with the situation. And so I feel like this is a very long introduction <laughs> from, um, essentially it was through my healing journey. A part of my healing journey was, um, oh, there's so many parts of it that I feel like <laughs> I don't want to start, but it was uh, forgiving him when I felt um, that I was being rejected and feeling massive, 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 overwhelming feelings of unworthiness from rejection. And then just healing and elevating that subconscious self-worth, setting healthy boundaries for myself of in every area of life, which also included romantic partners, sexual experiences, you name it. And as I was healing from this, I realized I could not go back to life as normal and during actually a self-compassion meditation I was doing one day, I felt so enormous, like my, my overwhelming feeling of self-compassion was greater than it had ever been. And in that moment, the only thing I wanted was for other people to feel as amazing as I did in that moment. And my subconscious mind presented a question to me. And that question was, who needs to feel this way, have self-compassion, self-forgiveness, and it feels so opposite from this. And my subconscious mind says, men suffering from pornography addiction. And in that moment, I go, oh, shit, I have the solution. <laughs> like the yeah. entire solution on a very deep level. And then in that, from that moment forward, which was over four years ago now, I have never turned back. And I created the Leap of Courage Recovery Program for men. And it has been absolutely wonderful and incredible. And my clients are my heroes. They are so brave to step into this healing journey because anyone who heals from addiction, addiction is merely a symptom of unresolved trauma. We can call trauma unresolved emotional wounds of the past. And when we have yeah. unresolved emotional wounds of the past, the subconscious mind doesn't feel safe and secure. So it reaches for these escapism behaviors and substances to create a false sense of security that we call the adult security blanket. And so it's how do we create a sense of security within the subconscious mind, within the nervous system, so that it, the subconscious mind is no longer compelled to reach for these addictive escapism behaviors. And that's that's what I have going on <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. I, kind of I like it. That, so for me, like that was that was I mean, I like the detail in that story simply because like uh I I pride myself on doing good research on my guests when I have them on. But there's, I couldn't find a ton about what what you do 
in interviews or, you know, I could just like stalk social media and get like a, like, so the, the research I could do is not surface level. It's a little bit deeper than surface level, which is like, I wouldn't have reached out if, if I couldn't find out enough about you, but, um, you know, I hearing that story, like I'm hearing it for the first time as well. So, I mean, that's like you said, in a nutshell, that's so much. And, you know, if I could, I just want to, you know, follow up on the like toxin thing. Cause I, I heard you speak about that and like where it came from. So like, can you, like, it wasn't a situation where you were on some wild, crazy trip to Singapore and, you know, had some killer blowfish thing. Like it was just something so normal that anybody, any of us could have happened. So, you know, it, that in itself opened my eyes to like, man, that, that's crazy for just, you know, a, a, a by chain, by, you know, happenstance situation to have that happen. So can you speak a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. So it's called Ciguatera neurotoxin. Uh, and, you know, only about 5% of the people who eat this neurotoxin get it chronically. And it can take years or decades. And it can literally kind of destroy a person's life or even kill people. It can send someone into cardiac arrest. And so I actually almost went into cardiac arrest many, many times, so much to the point that uh, I used to actually, like, even though I had a nice, cozy home, when it was time for sleep, I kept the back of my forerunner as a bed. And I would drive to the emergency room parking lot every night and sleep there because I was at such high risk of cardiac arrest. And my heart was doing weird, scary things. And the the doctors knew I was there and they said, yeah, given the severity of your condition, it's actually not a bad idea that you're sleeping in the back of your forerunner in the emergency room parking lot. When they gave me that validation, I'm like, no, you're supposed to tell me that I'm like, <laughs> you know, overthinking it. And, and they're like, yeah, you're, it's kind of nuts um, what's going on there. And so, um, and even eating every meal has the risk of inducing cardiac arrest if you eat the wrong thing and wrong food combinations. And so there was actually a pediatrician physician who she also acquired this ciguatera neurotoxin illness. And her and I were in communication as we were each healing. And she was eating every single meal in the emergency room parking lot, knowing she needed to be near a defibrillator wow. to restart her heart in the event of a cardiac arrest, just like how I was sleeping every night in the emergency room parking lot. That's the severity of this. And there was actually... Um, another doctor, a physician, um, I think it was in Arkansas, and he's an infectious disease specialist. He's the type of doctor who you're supposed to go see in the United States if you contract ciguatera neurotoxin illness. And he found me on the recovery group on Facebook and liked what I had to say and was like, you seem like you can teach me more than what I've learned in medical school and what <laughs> anyone else has to say. So then... Uh, he became to, he was using me as the person he would consult if he had questions. So here I am, I was actually consulting two doctors in the United States alone, who when they themselves contracted this and didn't know what to do, I had acquired it years <laughs> before they did and learned so much. And so um, it was, I ate the wrong batch of smoked canned oysters, which is actually a super rare way of getting it. Normally it's associated with bony fish around the coral reef and in the tropics and subtropics. Um, and so there's signs like in Hawaii, they'll have signs on the beach about ciguatera and things like that. There was a lab in Tahiti 
that in the 60s, they discovered this neurotoxin. And some of my own research that I was discovering and doing on my own, on my healing journey, one of the uh, the gals who worked at this lab, she did her PhD on Ciguatera and certain things in the conclusions that I came to independently were the exact things that she was doing her PhD dissertation on. And I was able to come to the conclusions of why things are happening, not just the fact that they're happening, but the why around it, which had to do with the limbic system part of the brain, which is like, you could call it the command center for the stress response and it heavily engages our emotions and a whole lot more. But what it does is it um, creates a hypervigilance or an oversensitivity of the limbic system part of the brain and everything gets hyper, hypersensitive to the point where uh, I couldn't walk into most buildings because of the synthetic off-gassing that was happening would send me mm. into like almost collapsing or dizzy, slurred speech. I would all of a sudden go from being like, I would, I would turn into what appeared to be a super drunk person who was on the verge of collapsing oh, wow. and couldn't speak. Um, synthetic like, smells, I couldn't go into most people's homes because my limbic system was trying to fight everything. And it is a perceived attack of death is on the way and it's these things that are causing it um and so most people don't get ciguatera neurotoxin um chronically like i did most people who get it they get literally like <laughs> it, it feels like the worst food poisoning you could ever get in your entire life and then maybe in like a week you're mostly back to functioning for some people it takes a few weeks or a few months for me it was several years I know some people who are going on 20 years battling this, um, but they haven't taken the proper healing techniques and strategies that can help you overcome this completely. So yeah. that's a little bit about Ciguatera. Oh, and it's a thousand <laughs> times more potent than arsenic, which can kill Ooh. you in small doses. That in itself, like that, that, that is the, like the tagline for that. That's terrible. Um, so you kind of mentioned, you know, your recovery journey and, uh, I saw that you said you had five-year recovery journey. Um, when you think back to being on that journey, uh, like how did it feel? Was there actually, did it actually feel like you were like heading somewhere or, you know, what did that roadmap look like to you? Oh, I had no idea Every single day, I had no idea if I was going to be alive an hour later. Yeah. And it was a terrifying feeling. Every single night I went to sleep, I never knew if I was ever going to wake up ever again. And I was, I basically made it my full-time job to heal myself. And I had to quit my job as a wildlife biologist where I used to, I would go in the redwood forest and I would use my voice to hoot for owls. And I would be riding around on my ATV, hiking around with my machete, my bear spray, my dog, and helping to prevent the extinction of uh, the Northern spotted owl species by collecting data and finding their nests. And which was totally awesome and amazing. <laughs> but then mm -hmm. um, I, I got so sick, I could hardly walk in a straight line down my hallway. And so here I go yeah. from being this like super, you know, hiking up crazy like hills and mountains and I was a rock climber and avid hiker and and canoed 800 miles down the Yukon River and I had a little bit built my identity around my physical abilities with these extreme things and then I had to all of a sudden have like this crazy identity crisis where I'm like I can't do any of the things that I built my identity around and I felt like so um like an unvalued, like a, not a valuable human being. I'm like, I can't contribute. I don't know what to do. There's so many things that 
required emotional healing and humbling. There was a lot of, I need yeah. to, to humble myself. A lot, a lot of healthy dropping of the ego. A lot of, he of healthy dropping of the ego in big ways. Um, and so eventually I knew that, I, I knew that I needed to, earn money again in some way. I was like on disability for a while, but it wasn't enough to cover expenses. I'd built up, you know, like $50,000 in debt on my healing recovery journey. And I'm like, I don't care. Debt doesn't scare me. I might mm -hmm. die. I'm going to, I'll max out my credit cards on my healing journey, which I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. $50,000 of debt doesn't scare me because I'm still alive and I almost wasn't. And I use that money to do whatever I needed to whatever I needed to, to heal and recover. And at one point I was like, okay, I'm getting healthy enough where I could maybe go back to work, but I felt like I could never have another person rely on me for work again. I had no idea. Like, what if I, I'm supposed to be at work at this time in these days and I'm feeling sick and I can't go in. I felt 100% unreliable as a human being. And I was like, okay, I just have to create my own way of income where I am only reliant on myself nobody else is reliant on me because I felt like okay I, I can't do that to anyone saying hey I'm going to show up and work for you and then saying I'm actually I'm too sick yeah. I feel like I would have had no yeah. business so I was like okay I wanted to go into the health coaching route and I actually took Chris Kresser's 12-month health coaching program which had something around 700 hours invested crazy thorough, crazy deep, comprehensive, absolutely incredible, amazing. He was actually my doctor in Berkeley, who was the first doctor who helped me in actual, real, legitimate ways, functional medicine doctor. Um, and so I was going to be a health coach. But then after my, my experiences with my own hypersexuality disorder and with a man who was addicted to pornography, all of a sudden I'm just like, when I had that meditation, yeah. self-compassion and all right, this is, I am going to devote my life to helping men overcome pornography addictions and any sex related addiction, because I know it on such a crazy deep level, deeper than what most people will ever need to know to overcome it fully, wholly and completely. And that was over four years ago. And it has been yeah. incredible and amazing. And here we are. <laughs> um so a question that comes to my mind immediately, number one, uh, not a question, but a statement is it, it, I asked that question to kind of run the parallel to, you know, the people dealing with, like, we talk a lot about mental health just in general on this podcast. And that, that is such a similar path to, you know, feeling hopeless in that journey and feeling like, I don't know where this goes. But like, I, I'm trying to figure it out. So like, I, I wanted that message across because I could tell just by what I've seen from you. And you know, you don't, you don't start something like this unless you truly want to like, help out the community that you are in, and not saying your local community, but like just community of human beings. So I applaud that. But the question I have is, you know, were you as open before the exposure as you are now? Or did it did you become that way on your path of recovery? Oh, that I love that question. I was not nearly this open. And the biggest reason why is because I kept everything so totally surface level because I didn't know myself on a deep level. I was as open as I knew how to be, which was super surface level. 
everything was, I used to be motivated in a very ego driven way because I had very low subconscious self-worth. I didn't know I had that, but I did. And I learned that about myself in my healing journey. And that's part of my childhood trauma. And so everything I did was like very, look at me, look at me, look what I could do. Let me tell you about the story of the time I did that amazing thing. And I would get like accolades and feedback from people in a way that would be very ego boosting to me. And that's the only way that my subconscious mind knew how to feel like a valuable person on this planet. So actually the ego driven behaviors are always driven by subconscious low self-worth every time. And it's a form of seeking external validation because a person doesn't feel valuable from, from within. They have to get this constant feedback from other people in order to feel worth, worth anything on this planet as a human being. And so it was always, oh, let me go, you know, rock climbing and climb that wall and, and feel valuable for doing this thing or, or whatever it, it was. Yeah. Um, and so now with my healing journey, in order to heal a mandatory part of trauma healing and addiction healing is getting to know yourself on an extremely deep level. And it can be scary because the things you learn, you know, this is why people call it shadow work. Shadow work kind of for two reasons. One, you want to keep it hidden in the shadows because it it doesn't feel good for other people to know these things about you. And then two, oftentimes these things are hidden from yourself, even though they're a part of your identity. So once yeah, you get yeah. to know these parts of yourself, I'll tell you what, the biggest, scariest moment for with my shadow work and learning, I would I had obvious adult PTSD to a pretty severe degree. There were times when I was actually experiencing um, episodes of psychosis and I, and I had the conscious rational awareness of it. And I thought, this is, I'm never going back. I'm never going, I'm like schizophrenia runs in my family and here's my episode and I'm never going back. And I was literally like banging my head on the wall and like people, I had someone talking to me and I was 100% unresponsive. And I was in this psychotic moment where I was having a conversation, like a future version of myself was having a conversation with like the current version of myself and the present version of myself. And it was this crazy psychotic episode that I had while I was banging my head on the wall. Yeah. And yeah. And so there was so much going on, but as I got to learn myself uh, about myself, part of it is, okay. I was going back to what I was saying a moment ago. There is a book called the body keeps the score. The body keeps the score. It is probably one of the most quintessential fundamental books to read for anyone who wants to learn about trauma. I was reading that to learn about my obvious adult PTSD brought on by the neurotoxin. And as I was reading it, they were going into childhood trauma stuff. And I'm like, this is not relevant to me, whatever. I almost skipped over it, but I'm like, I'll just read it. And then I had this heart wrenching, heart dropping moment where I'm like, holy shit. I am a poster child for childhood trauma. And it, I felt so totally broken. I felt permanently broken and unfixable in that moment. It was terrifying, utterly terrifying for me for two reasons. One, I didn't know that you could heal from childhood trauma. I didn't know how prevalent and absolutely common it was everywhere. And most people who have it are unaware of it. And so... 
it was, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. I was like, oh my gosh, I felt like this totally singled out, isolated, weird, broken person that like stood out from the crowd in a totally broken and unfixable way. And then when, you know, that day that I did that self-compassion meditation, prior to that meditation, like I was sitting like all day long, having these ruminating thoughts of, I'm just a totally worthless human being. I'm sick. I can't contribute to anyone. I'm, you know, just what can I do to give back? And I felt like I had suicidal thoughts. I was like, well, I didn't, I, okay, I'll take that back. I did not have suicidal thoughts. I knew I was not going to take action on that. But the thought I had was it would be a big favor to the world if I fell asleep and never woke up. It would be a big favor to the world if I fell asleep and never woke up, even though I wasn't planning on taking action on that. About a year and a half prior to that, I had considered taking action on that, but it was not an in-the-moment thing. It was, I'm going to devote 100% of my life to the healing journey. Every thought, every action, every choice, every purchase, every micro decision is going to be devoted 100% to the healing journey. And if in six months from now, I feel as bad as I do now, physical, the physical pain was horrendous. The emotional pain, I mean, it, it was terrifying. And I'm like, if this is where I'm at in six months from now and I haven't made progress, I'll have to figure out a way to tell my family that I won't exist anymore. Yeah, that's tough. Um, there's so much there that, like I said, you know, the the target demographic for what we uh, do, I'm sure can relate to in their own way. And I think that that is, you know, I, I like that the you know, name drop of the book, uh, definitely something I'm going to look up because, uh, I, I am, I don't want to say obsessed with that kind of content, but like anything that I can use to learn more about how to better interact with people, how to better interact with myself, uh, is definitely like high on my priority, my priority list. Um, this is something that you could not have known. Uh, at least I would imagine you couldn't have known. I actually just got a tattoo on my arm on Friday the 13th that just passed of, uh, the sun and the moon card, because it, when they're displayed together, it's, you know, to trying to shine light on that shadow self that you're, that you're, you're not, you don't want anybody to see. And my goal for this next year, I don't set resolutions. I set goals. My, my goal for this next year is to be more my authentic self. And the only way to be your authentic self is to go find your authentic self. So like I, I, resonate with everything you or everything you said resonates with me in that regard because it's so true and i think that you know like you said it was a really good question because i you or a really good answer to that question because you have to figure out who you are to become open and if you yourself don't know what the answers to those questions are you're only as open as you you know you can be and i think that you know that that says a lot and you know i think that that is amazing. But also something that, that you said in the closing of one of your videos on your website, uh, which I really loved is um, you cannot put an expiration date on the healing process. And like, wow, I love that. That's just so like, that's just such a, like, if there's anything that anybody on a healing journey, whether they're on day one or day 101, like that it's that, that there is not an expiration date on it. You do, you are not supposed to be here, then there, A to Z as it were. Like you don't, you don't get, that's not how it works. It is, 
the time it takes and being patient with yourself and, you know, the people that love you should hopefully be showing you that same level of patience. So I just want to say like, shout out to that line. Cause that was amazing. Thank you. Thank you for, um, taking a look at that and resonating with it. And it, it's so true because, you know, when you learn the process of healing, you realize that you're going to need the process for the rest of your life because pain will continue to show up for the rest of your life. And so there is no expiration date. That's why I have all of my clients, they have lifetime access to everything I have going on. I'm like, all right, who, who am I to put an expiration date on your healing journey? Yeah, I love that. And I, I love that that's, that's part of the reason for me, I'm, I'm very much one of those people that like, if I got it, it's yours. If it's something, if it's within my power to do, I'm going to do no matter what the situation is. If I, if it's not my power, then like, I mean, I can only do so much, but you know, resources, if my resource is something that can help you, you know, uh, in perpetuity, then like, what? why would I not, why, why would I be like, nope. And I, like, I, I do art and things like that. And I'm, people are always like, you charge so little for your art. It's so good. I, it's, Cause it's not, my thing is that like that continued enjoyment out of that piece of art is the payment for me. That's the thing is that like, I know that you and you enjoy this thing enough that like it's special to you and I, I nothing else matters to me, but that, and you know, I just, I I don't know. It's I I people who have that same like shared like man. I just want to help. I just want to be of service to my my fellow human because like what else? Like at the end of the day, like I I'm I'm saying this with the lens of like I have no idea what happens, but like at the end of the day, once we're in the dirt or in the mushroom suit or whatever the thing is that you decide to do, uh if that's all that there was is what you did while you were, you know, standing vertically, then like, what, what did you give back? What did you, what did you put forth into this world? And, you know, people that are like shining that light and saying, I want to help people because I went through this. And, you know, if I could help two people, three people, 15 people, a hundred people, whatever it is, uh, like, I love that. So again, you know, thank you for, for, for emoting that same kind of thing. You're welcome. And, you know, we as human beings, when we are in our most natural state, we are we are naturally of service to other people. I mean, we have, there's mm-hmm. been the test done that neurochemically, it creates the neurochemicals of happiness when we are of service to other people. And a single act of gratitude can shift your neurochemistry for up to three days in a way that makes you feel happier. It's incredible. It's incredible. That's just who we are as human beings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, exactly. You know, you talked about your authentic self. Do you mind if I speak on that for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a term that's thrown around a lot, right? Your authentic self, be your authentic self, find your authentic self, discover your authentic self. And it wasn't until I listened to world-renowned Dr. Gabor Mate speak about authentic self, and that's when I really understood what it was. And I think it's this convoluted idea that seems a little fuzzy, something we all want, but don't exactly know what it is. And it's essentially, so Dr. Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate, he is a world leading expert on both trauma and addiction and ADHD. Since most ADHD is actually a symptom of unresolved childhood trauma and all addiction is also the same thing. So essentially trauma is 
getting disconnected from your authentic self. Almost always, almost 100% of the time as a child. And so what does that mean? What does that even look like? It's usually when you are a child and you are naturally and effortlessly just expressing yourself who you are, how you are in that moment. Maybe it's sadness and crying. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's laughter. And someone in your life belittled you or hurt you or did something to you to make it feel no longer safe to express that part of who you are. Maybe if you had parents that say, don't cry, stop crying. Or if you, if there was something that naturally brought up healthy anger and you were told to not express that, all of a sudden your subconscious mind goes, oh, the only way for me to be lovable is to not express that part of who I am, is for me to not express that authentic part of who I am. And so now the subconscious mind says, hmm, the only way that I'm safe in this world is to no longer express that authentic part of who I am. Because if I'm not lovable, then I can't survive, especially a child is dependent. Their survival is dependent on the caretaker, caretaking of adults. And so there may be all of these different parts of our authentic self that are being subconsciously repressed as a result of what happened when we are younger. And then adult experiences can deepen the the repression of it. Or healthy adult experiences can help safely let them show. And so essentially, trauma healing at its core is reconnecting with your authentic self, with the parts that your subconscious mind at some point in the past felt unsafe to express. And once you feel safe to express them again, that's called healing. And so addiction recovery is, is trauma recovery and trauma recovery is being able to reconnect with the parts of who you are and your authentic self and your subconscious mind feeling safe enough to reconnect with what those things are. And then we just go out in the world and you are yourself fully, wholly, and completely. Yeah. I, I thank you for that. And I think that I like, I have some questions later on about about that so i'm trying to like figure out how i can like tiptoe around that without like asking those questions because uh i i think that that like you just like the healing journey finding yourself is um i on a earlier podcast that i that i recorded i can't remember which one we were talking i was talking about one of my favorite games to play with yourself which is the uh the why game so like if you're mad about something and asking yourself why and then, you know, continue to ask yourself that, that why question until you, until it's no longer viable, which is almost impossible to do and finding out like, you know, that situation and I, like I, f- finding your authentic self is more than just, you know, sitting in a room and meditating. It's more than just, you know, going for a walk and, you know, communing with nature and, and that it's it's every aspect. And for me personally, I, I, I've been on this finding myself journey for like the last three years. And one of the things that like I've personally been able to do is to forgive my father for, you know, situations that like he, I, I don't, I'm trying to figure out like the best way to explain it to not like sound like I am still like bitter about it. But essentially, you know, the thing that I can say now that I couldn't say at the start of that is that I understand that he was doing the best he could 
and thought he was doing what was best in that moment. And although the results weren't favorable for everybody involved, I, I can understand now where he was coming from. And I want to hear people talk about trauma and grief and things like that, that like you're still holding on to. Uh, one of the things that like I realize now that I can do that I didn't then is like, I don't necessarily feel like that strong emotional hit when I think about that memory. I've, I, when I think about it, I feel neutral. And the, the thing that I like, probably if I had to pull out a feeling when I think about all of those things, it, to me, I, I pull out sad and it's not sad at the event. It's sad that like time was lost because of that. And that's a shift that like, I would not have had, I would not have been, you know, aware of. So, you know, I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think that more people need to hear that. Um, I do have another question for you. Um, just, you know, I guess an interesting note that I, um, I, I read through doing my research about you is, you know, doctors and therapists and church pastors, uh, have all come to you for help when they themselves are stuck in a porn addiction. And I think that's a very good point to bring up simply because this is a thing that affects everybody, not just, you know, uh, the strange kid down the street that everybody has this image of when they think of porn addiction or sex addiction. Um, you know, in our culture now, I, in hosting this podcast, want to be more sex positive. I want to be, you know, emulate one of the podcasts I love listening to is shameless sex. And their, uh, their opinion about it is, you know, like everybody should be more shameless about things like this in general. And I, I love that. So I love that you're out here doing, you know, doing that work, doing those things. So, um, I, like I said, I thought that was an interesting note, but, uh, is it a surprise to you that all walks of life are affected by it? And, you know, what would you say to those who are feeling, you know, their place in or position in society, you know, forces them to like maybe hide and not seek out programs like yours? Yeah. So right with what I know about addiction in general, and especially our easy access to digital addictions, pornography, social media, gaming, these things are neurochemically very addictive. So given the easy access to it, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, initially, I was surprised when I had church pastors and doctors and physicians and licensed therapists coming to ask me for help. And now I'm just not even phased by it anymore. I'm like, of course, it's just, it's everywhere. And, um, and especially the life that we have right now uh, with modern day technology. And so I'm not surprised. And as far as people who are experiencing something like this right now, one of the first fundamental things to do is having shifting from shame to self-compassion, shifting from shame to self-compassion. And for most people who don't have self-compassion, it's because they didn't learn it as a child. And learning self-compassion is usually the most, the single most difficult thing any human being can learn within themselves if they didn't learn it integrated into their neurology and subconscious mind as a child. And so there are strategies and techniques, but when we make the shift, essentially when you are living by the neurochemicals of self-compassion as opposed to shame, those neurochemicals of self-compassion make it significantly easier to make healthy choices and decisions for ourselves. 
when we're living by the emotion of shame, the shame itself can be a trigger into an escapism. Since any stress response, physical stress response, emotional stress response, that is the number one trigger for an escapism behavior or to relapse from any addiction. And so uh, a piece of advice would be when you're trying to overcome any type of addiction, it's extremely important to not just dopamine switch into another addictive choice. So if someone says, mm-hmm. I want to avoid uh, pornography, and then now they're just um, switching over to now they have a gaming addiction or a social media addiction or a gambling addiction or online shopping addiction or eating addiction, uh, it's very, very, very common for people to just dopamine switch into another addictive choice, another es- uh, external escapism behavior. And so anyone and everyone can heal from addiction, but you have to fully want it for yourself, even if it seems like the most terrifying thing in the world that you could want for yourself. The name of my program is Leap of Courage because everyone who says yes to it, it requires an incredible amount of courage and bravery to say yes to the healing journey. So I would say don't wait until it feels amazing to say yes. If it feels terrifying saying yes, that's how you know you're in the right place. I love that. We, uh, I, I always say you got to start getting comfortable being uncomfortable because yes. that's where change happens. So yeah. I love that. Um, and you kind of brought it up. So like, I, I'm just going to jump into that question. Uh, how do you feel, you know, I, I guess this is probably the most like personal opinion-y question, not like uh, fact informed, but uh, how do you feel, you know, porn sites like Pornhub affect the increase in numbers in this and, you know, in a, in aside to that point, you know, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but, you know, do you believe that the more ethical sites like Balesa and Make Love Not Porn are really trying to make the sh- are really trying to make those shifts and, you know, the type of content that they put out, uh, is that moving in the right direction to try and help curb some of that? So I'm not sure of the Make Love Not Porn site. There's so, so many sites out there that I are out there that I'm not aware of, obviously, you know, of Pornhub. <laughs> um, so, yeah. you know, so I can't necessarily speak on that because I don't know what those other sites are doing. But what I can speak on is what we do know is that pornography creates a lack of connection with other people. And so ultimately, e- even if there's two people in the same room watching porn together and having their sexual experience together. Um, I actually had um, a boyfriend in the past, long before I knew pornography addiction was a thing. In hindsight, I realized he had all of the signs of being definitely addicted to pornography. Um, and there was there's no intimacy and there's no connection. And if someone, it depends on someone's values. If someone says, I don't value the intimacy and connection part, I just value the how good can I feel and how aroused can I get and how mm-hmm. good can I, you know, if someone is looking for that, then that's that's a values thing. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a right or a wrong thing, but then I'll venture to say if someone says, well, I don't really value the intimacy and connection, I just value seeing, feeling as good as I can, then they are disconnected with, they are not their authentic self. They're disconnected with a fundamental part of every single human being who we are wired to be. We are 
we are beings of connection. And when we don't have that, it's because if we, if we don't value the human experience, it's because at some point in our past, there was a connection and we were deeply emotionally wounded with the person or people we were connected with. And the subconscious mind says, connection with a human being is the most dangerous thing I can experience. It's the thing that has caused the most pain in my life. And so if someone hasn't resolved from that pain, intimacy and connection, even if it's non-sexual, is going to feel absolutely and utterly the most terrifying, dangerous thing that the human being can experience. And so then they're going to seek things that are self-isolating, that will give them a neurochemical thrill in the moment. And then they'll feel really amazing during that thrill, but usually pretty uh, terrible when they're not engaged in those really uh, high dopamine seeking escapism behaviors. I don't no. think I really answered your question. I kind of went. No, you did. <laughs> no, you did. I, so that one, like I said, that one was like a, a a personal, like when I was, when I was thinking about it earlier, I was trying to figure out, you know, like what, what do I know about, you know, this realm of context. And one of the things that like I've, I've seen, I try and, you know, follow content creators who are, you know, trying to do it ethically. I try and follow things that are, that are trying to move the needle in the right direction. And, you know, Pornhub obviously is synonymous with like super specific things. And the porn industry as a whole right now is going through like this metamorphosis of like, you know, what you see in porn isn't real. And those other two companies, Balesa and Make Love Not Porn are trying to create like Balesa is, you know, female produced content, you know, content for females by females and make love, not porn is more, I don't want to say like on the amateur side, but like more of like what real world sex looks like. It's, you know, it's not overproduced kinds of like this, this would never happen in in a real bedroom. So like they're, they're trying to give you an alternative to what, you know, is just that like instant gratification kind of thing. But like I said, I mean, I, I think you answered that question really well. And you also brought up, you know, a, a really good like segue into, you know, when you're dealing with it and you're partnered and trying to figure it out. So like, is there anything that you would say to the partner of somebody who is a sex addict or a uh, porn addict, like trying to, trying to, you know, I guess, navigate it. And, you know, this time you can definitely put on your program running hat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously if, if someone's really addicted and they are wanting help, then they, I can, I will work with men who in my recovery program it is by invitation only um, selfcraftedking.com, the leap of courage program. Um, but one of the things I can say like right off the bat, that can be a piece of uh, knowledge or advice that you can use immediately is if you are addicted in any way, shape, or form, and even if it's uh, you have a real-life sexual partner, it's essentially when you're triggered into the sexual experience, uh, your, bo- your body is physiologically kind of craving it, oftentimes it is a, tr- a stress response that triggered it. And so that is the fundamental time where you do not want to act on it because you will never overcome the addiction if that's when you act on it. And so I've actually had, uh, I have conversations with my clients who are married or have fiancés or, or partners that they actually have a, a real life partner to engage in the sexual experience with, but they're also 
addicted to pornography. And one of the important conversations we have is um, sex is a beautiful, amazing, wonderful thing. I think human beings need to have actually focus a much larger portion of their life on the sexual experience and doing it in a way that creates um, exploring yourself and your partner and intimacy and vulnerability and communication on a stronger level. I think like the world would be a much better place. If we had <laughs> um, so it's encouraging that, but it's saying, okay, when you have a stress response and you're triggered into the sexual experience, so your body is compelling you to want to have it, that's not the time to have it. Otherwise, something that could happen is now you are addicted going from pornography addiction over to a sex addiction with a real partner. And now maybe you are addicted to having real life sex. It's the same trigger, the same physiological response, but essentially it's a new ejaculation outlet, you could call it, mm -hmm. <laughs> instead of pornography, yeah. it's a, you know, your partner. Um, and, and, you know, but women can also be addicted to pornography as well. I'll just throw that in there. Um, very much so. Um, women tend to get more uh, sex addiction with real life partners, whereas a lot of men get addicted to pornography, but it's there's a mix up of everything going on in there. And so essentially it's, there's strategies that I teach in my course to lower the stress response so that you're using strategies that strengthen your neurology to be able to self-regulate and not feel so reliant on an external escapism behavior. And then when you're, you've calmed your neurology, you've calmed your subconscious mind and your nervous system, and you've activated more that parasympathetic nervous system, that's the healthier time and place to go engage in the sexual experience with your real life partner. Because now you're no longer using your partner as the escapism outlet from a stress response. Yeah, uh, I like you said. I it's such an interesting thing, and you know why I was so happy to like that you were like, yeah, I will totally. I I would like to you know have this conversation because it's something that I don't know enough about. And like I said, when there's something I don't know enough about, it definitely makes me like want to want to jump in, like you know, like both feet. And that's why, like you know, everything you're saying, it's like I'm just hanging on the words because it's like, man, uh, and it's such a such a every case like i i work with uh kids that have autism and every case may be similar but every case is unique in that same sense and you know it it becomes such a each like there are you know these overall arching like if you handle these situations doesn't matter how you're affected by the situation but you handle these situations like this you handle this situation like that and you can start to move the needles in the right direction and one of those things is you know uh the approach of you know addressing the behavior not masking it with you know like a medication or something like that like you the the culture now is you know medicate and you know prescribe and send home and I I like that you're approaching this from like the almost holistic side of like that that may help, but also these are practices to you know address the behavior and address the the actual things that you can do in your everyday life because that's that that's where it matters. So you know, is there any like I, you don't have to give away the shop or anything, but is there anything that like drives you towards you know figuring out 
those methods uh, versus you know what what does or doesn't work medically, chemically, you know, prescription wise. I'm all about holistic healing and figuring out root causes. And to me, if you still have to take a, medi- a medication, then you're not healed. That you're masking some symptom, which usually then causes some other thing to show up that's unpleasant, right? And I I want to live life fully, wholly, and completely. And I just feel like that's not possible with many of the medications and the side effects and this and that. And then it's still feeling like, well, something's still wrong with me if I have to take something every day. And if I have, if there is the possibility of healing to the point where I am in full control, my body feels healthy, my mind feels healthy, my emotions are in a place where I can express them in a healthy way and I can self-regulate, then I'm going to go for that. I'm going to go. It's the route that takes more discipline, more time, more effort. And so many people are not willing to do that. But the people who are, that's why I call my clients my heroes. And I've had quite a few of my clients who've been able to go off of their medications because they did some root cause healing. And it's been absolutely incredible. Um, And there's something I want to chime in about what you said about five, 10 minutes ago about the more amateur porn. I've actually Mm -hmm. had... Um, quite a few of my clients have said that that's the only type of porn that they've watched where it's as amateur as it gets Interesting, and they get highly addicted. And one of the things that even that type of pornography does is so pornography, it's a super stimulus as far as how it hijacks our subconscious mind and affects our dopamine receptors and changes our baseline level of dopamine to the point where a lot of men who are addicted to pornography, they are it will automatically lower competitive drive for anything that you're doing in life, whether it's um, trying to get that promotion at work or trying to like get the the number to, you know, that pretty lady or whatever, you know, it's, it lowers competitive from a neurochemical um, neurobiological standpoint. It massively lowers competitive drive and it massively lowers healthy risk-taking. And so I've heard this over and over from my clients, like they'll go out on a date and then at the, the end, they actually prefer to go home and watch pornography instead of trying to like hook up with her at the end. Or they will feel like the date in and of itself will feel like a chore because it takes effort, creativity, social (laughs) intelligence. When it comes to pornography, you don't need to brush your teeth, take a shower. You don't have to have social intelligence. You don't have to be compelling about anything. You, pornography never rejects you. It's the, it's the safe route that gets you nowhere. Yeah. And actually kind of brings you down. Whereas, uh, so pornography in the subconscious mind, pornography says, don't go on that date. That takes time, energy, effort, money. Just stay home and watch porn. And so that's very common occurrence. (laughs) I think that's interesting because it brings up the, you know, subconscious, preference of you know maybe because it's not overproduced it's more real it's it's more of a real world situation your brain uh and this leads me into a question i wanted to ask like perfectly uh you know it's it's more subconsciously saying well this is as close to a real life situation as i'm as as my body is allowing me to get so i i could see that and you know the my next question actually was how clever is the subconscious mind 
oh, I mean, it is infinitely clever. It, it, it knows so much, but it also can get tricked very easily. So that's the thing. It, it is deeply knowledgeable, deeply wise, and can be easily tricked. And so the subconscious mind just, it has a couple of things that it it does for us, which is its whole goal is, all right, we're going to keep you safe. We're going to do whatever it takes to bring in certain neurochemicals based on choices that you make. And so it says, oh, when you watch pornography or when you do, you know, these certain activities, your neurochemicals are in a place that says, this is the best possible thing that we could have going on in our life. And when you have that activity in your life, the subconscious mind compares it to everything else. And now everything else in your life, the subconscious mind goes, hmm, boring, dull, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. We're not going to neurochemically set you up to give, to make you motivated to do those things because it's not porn. It's not video games. It's not social media. It's not the cheap, low hanging, effortless fruit to dopamine. And so the subconscious mind says, the subconscious mind wants the the path of least resistance to the strongest neurochemicals that make you feel good. And yeah, so yeah. the more that we have things in our life like pornography, video games, social media, junk food, the subconscious mind goes, anything that's not that, we're going to make sure to make it very, uh, to put up a strong resistance and to tell you, you don't want to do those things. We're going to neurochemically set you up to not do those things. Because the juice ain't worth the squeeze. Don't you see this amazing neurochemical hit when we do these other things? We're going to make sure that you only want to do those. So everything else feels like a tremendous effort. And the subconscious mind is going to go, don't do those. Don't Don't advance in your career. Don't take the more challenging class. Don't ask her out on a date. Don't, why would you do those things? It takes so much time and energy and effort with a lower neurochemical payoff. So as long as you have those cheap, low hanging fruit of dopamine activities in your life, it's going to feel extremely more difficult to get ahead in life. But when we remove those cheap, lower hanging fruits of dopamine, your subconscious mind and the dopamine receptors, it it has a beautiful, amazing reset. And now we feel compelled and motivated and have the strong desire to do, to, to run that marathon, to advance in your career, to, to, to be in really good shape to advance in your whatever it is and now those things feel good and you're like driven and motivated and compelled to do it so on the flip side of that coin uh how strong is a say it perceive it mindset when it comes to like the symptoms and you know headspace like that which is where you were you know on the path to right there and i think like i said it's the two sides of it is you know understanding the subconscious mind but also the conscious mind and you know like i said the the say it and perceive it saying you know whatever you know affirmations things like that like what what are the power what powers do you think that that brings you to as a as opposed to your subconscious mind you mean power of affirmation? Like what is, so most people hate affirmations because most people do them wrong. So for most people, they don't work. And essentially, if you just say it or write it down, it's almost like, uh, imagine the Bart Simpson writing on the chalkboard when he's in trouble. Like (laughs) that's not hitting the subconscious mind, right? That's a chore. So essentially what affirmations, when you do it the right way, it's actually a form of self-hypnosis. But you have to get your whole body involved. 
you have to get your your body posturing, your body language, your facial expressions, and your tone of voice involved. And you have to make it believable, as if there was an audience of a thousand people and you're on stage and when you say the thing, they believe you. At that point, your subconscious mind believes it to be true. Love that. Stamp. Good. I like I I that's I think your brain, the brain is such an interesting thing. And what for, again, for me, I'm always like jazzed about topics like this because the brain is so interesting. And again, you know, like you can give somebody all the love in the world, but if they hate themselves, it's never going to get through. So like each, each situation, like I said, it's, you know, like the, the autism reference of like, every situation is different, but every situation, but, but they all have the same thing. And it's so interesting to, to deal with. Um, so like, I, like I said, I appreciate it. And we clearly have like just scratched the surface on a lot of this. And this might be one of those moments where I'm like, Hey, I might have to have you back on and we can have like a deeper conversation about something. Uh, because, uh, we are coming to, you know, right up on an hour and I got to get to the, this or that. And there are so many other questions I want to ask, but like I said, uh, you know, just hanging on the words and jazzed about the wealth of knowledge that you are. Um, so we're going to turn our brains slightly, you know, 90 degrees to the left and, uh, you know, have some easier questions. So are you ready for the, this or that? I'm ready. All right. That moment where it all made sense or that first moment you were able to help somebody else. Ooh. Is it is it which one is more important to me, or which one yeah, stands? Yeah, up which one, which one would you choose? Which 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 one of those moments are you are you are you uh, are you after? Oh, am I after? As if it hasn't happened yet? Yeah, like exactly. As it like like if uh, you're if you're feeling it, which one speaks to you the most? Like that's the one I would need. Oh, definitely helping someone else, hands down. I figured. I like to I like to guess which one I think the personal before I get to know them. Uh so I like that one. Um but if you're familiar with the Enneagram, <laughs> I'm a uh eight wing two and wing two that two is the helper. So Yeah. Um so next one is dream vacation or dream keynote speaker opportunity. Oh keynote speaker. Easy. That would be my vacation. <laughs> yeah. I figured you were going to say that exact thing when I was thinking about it. Um, I was like, well, I could couple it together. And, you know, that's the, the, you know, the, the smart person answer. All right. And uh, the last one, and this one is like, it could be for you. It could be for somebody else. Uh, just, you know, and in general, like how it was applied is up to you, how you interpret it, but a helping hand or a guiding light. Guiding light. Interesting. Guiding. I did not. I I figured you'd say helping hand, but guiding light. I like, I like it. Um, guiding light is under know. the of a helping hand and allows a person to figure out what they need to figure out in a way that helps them to be more empowered because you showed them the way that they needed to walk without doing it for them. I love that. Um, that's a soundbite moment. Um, <laughs> uh, well, again, like I said, thank you for coming on. Uh, like I said, we're, I'm going to have to reach back out and maybe get a, a follow-up because there's so much more that like 
we could talk about and you know so many other questions that i could that i could ask and get, having gotten to know you a little bit you know things that like spark you and i i know you could we we like to say we fall down tons of rabbit holes here so like you would fit right in and uh my co-host would definitely love a crack at you to have those same things she um she's keen on uh all things kind of grief related and uh for her life experience and i'd be curious as to how she could apply some of the same concepts to you know dealing with grief in her life so like I said, I, I I think we might have to try and uh, convince you to come back on. So, but again, thank you for being here. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. This was incredible, and the answer is already yes. I would love to be on again. I love the questions and just the opportunity to share in a way that could be a guiding light for others out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, perfect. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time. The bell is about to ring. If you want to drop us a voice message or simply ask a question, you can do that by clicking the link in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. It helps more people find us. Theme music by Kinsey. More music available on Spotify. Remember, every day is a class. Go learn something.